are entering the Freedom Hut. The shutdown continues, my friends. It looks like neither side is going to blink. Federal workers missed a paycheck. We're hearing a lot of stories about what that means for them. Plus, Democrats and the Senate engaging in anti-Catholic bigotry, perhaps as a prelude to the fight over a looming Supreme Court seat. We'll talk about that and more coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Uh, The bill before us will certainly do some good. They will authorize some badly needed funding for better fences and better security along our borders. Look, I voted uh, uh, numerous times when I was a senator to spend money to build a, uh, a barrier. 630 miles of border fence that create a significant barrier to illegal immigration. A fence will stop 20 kilos of, co- of cocaine coming through that fence. I'm deeply opposed to illegal immigration, and I call on the federal government the president and the immigration services to stop the inflood of illegal immigrants into this country. The Democrats, which I've been saying all along, they don't give a damn about crime. They don't care about crime. They don't care about gang members coming in and stabbing people and cutting people up. We're spending a fortune on trying to stop drugs and they pour in through the border. But I see it more now than ever before. The Democrats don't care about the border and they don't care about crime. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. I, I know it's Friday, and we're, I promise we're going to have some fun later on in the show, and we're going to loosen things up a bit. But I, we had to start there with just, I mean, the Democrats are just lying their faces off. They really are. You know, Walls don't work. What, we, what you had, you had Schumer, Hillary, Obama, all talking about barriers and fences, and, and that's the whole, that's what this whole discussion's about. Now they're pretending like that, that means nothing. And, and, you know, there, there's one part of this that I haven't really drilled down into as we're in the midst of this shutdown. And I know that federal employees are not going without a paycheck for the first time. Uh, the part of this is that it's not, yes, there's huge political implications of this for 2020. Yes, it matters a lot that we tackle the crisis. It is a crisis at the border that we deal with this. But then there's also, how how can we have any faith in discussions about politics and policy in this country if if as americans we can't even trust the other side to agree that a wall works what what can we trust them with you know if if there's going to be this this fundamentally false premise that is relied upon by so many millions and millions of people and and the power apparatus and the media and the democratic party that all of a sudden a fence is not really a fence. You know, a chair is not really a chair. This is what our politics has devolved into. We, we, we're having these conversations full of, of sophistry and insanity. And it really just is because Democrats are driven by emotions and desire for power. And they don't care how foolish this whole thing sounds. I have people still that look at me and say, walls don't work. I look at this. This is such a dumb thing to say. 
And look at the way that the, the, the tone, the conversation has transformed. If you had said a year ago even, or maybe three, two, three years ago before Trump came into office, but you know, during the Obama administration, if somebody had said build a wall, and, and when Trump was running for president, someone said, you know, build a wall, it was, oh, that's so dumb. And everyone clap, you know, yeah, that's right. That's such a stupid thing to say. Now that we're thinking about it and spending time looking at the issue, talking to actual experts. By the way, I am going to the border next week. I will be at a wall next week. I will be at a border meeting with Border Patrol, going all over the place, doing a lot of uh, on-the-ground reporting. So uh, the show will continue, obviously. I'll be doing the show from the West Coast next week, but uh, or starting Tuesday. But I'm really looking forward to getting ground truth because these people are just lying to me all the time in the media. I know they're lying, but I'm just amazed at how brazen they are, uh, you know, brazen they are about it. They just don't care. Just like Trump said, they don't care about crime either. They have no, they have no real concerns about any of the stuff that's going on at the border. It's fine for them. It's fine. They, they pretend to care, but we know that they don't. You just hear insanely stupid things on TV from people who, whose job is to go on TV and sound smart. Insanely dumb things. Here's uh, over, at, over at MSNBC. Here's, uh, I don't know who this is, Maria Hinojosa. I don't know who this is. Uh, saying that 9-11 told us something very important about walls. This might surprise you. Play clip five. You sound like you don't think the Democratic response was as robust as it could have been. Because the problem with the Democratic response is they are continuing to play into this narrative of, oh my God, border security, border security. Guys, I've been talking about this story for 30 years. For 30 years, there's been the neurosis about border security. The greatest terrorist attack in our country did not happen because someone crossed that border. It happened in our city because they got off of planes. So there it begins to feel like the wheels are just spinning, 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 talking about border security. That's just a, that's just a non sequitur. You know, th this is this is bringing something in the conversation that has nothing to do with anything. No one is saying that our southern, our southern uh, barriers would stop all terrorist attacks. Maybe it wouldn't even stop any terrorist attacks. Doesn't matter. But there, there is a, you, you see it now. There's this desperation because there is a focus on the issue now. We are talking about it. Trump has taken the message to the American people that they there's all these different re oh there's this and there's that there's all these reasons that they pretend exist for why you shouldn't do this and you knock them down one by one we already have barriers and fences along hundreds of miles of our border we already know that those barriers and fences have dramatically improved security at those parts of the border we already know that there has been bipartisan legislation passed in the last decade or so to build an entire barrier system along our southern border like you know we have border patrol agents at the very highest level down to the rank and file telling us this is what they want and it would be helpful other countries israel among them have built incredibly effective barrier systems that have dramatically improved their security schumer voted for 25 billion dollars a year ago for border security now they're saying five billion is too much one billion they're saying is too much a dollar is too much just you list this out and what are we what are they even talking about 
I mean, they might as well be pushing around a shopping cart with, with, with gibberish written on cardboard. This is not even a real debate. That's not even a real argument. They just keep saying things. I'm, I'm hearing a lot of bap, 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 but, but no intellectual heft, no seriousness behind it whatsoever. And I think that there's a desperation that is creeping up in their minds because even if they just hold the line on this and say, sorry, not going to give you any money for it. I think that Trump has has changed minds. He's certainly changed the conversation on this one. And we've just seen that the Democrats are the party of lawlessness and a broken border. Fine. We can't say open border because they want to process the illegals that come in and make sure that they get state benefits and Obamacare. So it's not a totally open border. They're going to slow people down before they give them taxpayer funded goodies. But it's a broken border, and they like it that way. They prefer the broken system. They do not want a fixed system that keeps people out. Every country in the world enforces its borders. We somehow are not allowed to. Every other country says, you come, you can't. You go, you stay. We're not allowed to do that. We're mean people if we do that. We're bad people. All of us, doesn't matter what your skin color, what your ethnicity, what your religion, if you aren't in favor of perpetuating this broken system where we are being exploited, the American people are being exploited by one political faction that knows that we are a good-hearted people that bring in a million legal immigrants every year and we're happy for the legal immigrants who are coming into this country, we welcome them into our family, but they use that good-natured approach that that the American people overwhelmingly share to push this issue on us and say it has to be even more. More people, illegal people, people who come into the country. Illegals who commit crimes shouldn't even be deported. Deportation is breaking up families. I mean, just all this rhetoric and lies and smears and slime. Ugh. Pelosi and Schumer and the whole Democrat gang, they are gross. And I'm happy that, if nothing else, that has been exposed for anyone with their with their eyes open. We've seen what's really what's really happening here. Now that all said, Trump Trump understands that this is rough on, on some federal employees. And I know a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck. I I I lived paycheck to paycheck. I know what that's like. Not fun. But this is Trump's message to those federal employees. Play 20. Oh, we don't have it. Well, he says, many many federal employees agree with what we're doing. They don't want to see people killed because we can't do a simple border structure. Everyone will be paid. We have no choice. That's what the president said. And that's an important thing for him to say. Um, I, I understand that people that work for the federal government have this idea that, you know, they will be, they have employment forever. I mean, I, that was kind of the sense when I was there too, and that there'll always be that paycheck. And that's one of the advantages of working for the federal government. But Trump is saying, look, even those people that are suffering hardship and the hardship is real, who work for the federal government understand that this is a critical issue. We have to get control of this. There are literally lives hanging in the balance and they are going to be paid they will be i don't think anyone has any doubt they'll be paid so people keep saying to be show to show up for work and not be paid 
I've had lots of times in my life where I wasn't, you know, paid on time or I didn't get the check when I was told I was going to get the check. As long as you get it in a reasonable time frame, you kind of just move on with your life, right? I've had plenty of times where I've had to, you know, chase chase down one employer or another for money that I was owed. I mean, this is not unheard of for any of us. They will be paid. So I think that's also an important part of this. That's something that we shouldn't allow to get way, you know, get all out of control with with the media narrative about this. And uh, ultimately, I think that Trump is is doing uh, pretty good pretty uh, pretty good job of making this case. Here's a Democratic representative from Minnesota discussing where his district is on the wall. This might surprise some of you. Play, play clip nine. They are concerned about the trade situation, but from what I can tell, they're still hanging with the president. Uh, today, we got 67 calls uh, for building the wall and five against. <laughs> so sounds to me like he's still pretty popular. And yet I hear from lib journos all the time, America overwhelmingly disagrees with the wall, doesn't want a wall. Based on what? One thing that you see the left do a lot, and the journalists of the left, which you know is one and the same, uh, one thing that they, they, they do with, with great frequency is this appeal to imaginary experts. Right? Oh, I, I have some super secret geniuses or some incredible data that I'm just going to refer to and hope that you don't call me out on it because it doesn't really exist. You know, All the studies say, all the polls say, experts, I love this one on the border, experts say walls don't work. That's not true. I hear it all the time. People say it on TV all the time. It's not true. There are, I, have, I have yet to meet an actual expert on border security who says that a barrier does not work because they know that they would be clowned if they said it. Because I would have then Border Patrol from San Diego sector, who I'm going to go see next week, they'd say, no, this has helped us tremendously. Here are the stats to prove it. It's no question. It's no question. They're lying to you. And they're lying for a reason. So I just wanted to uh, dig into some of this. And we'll have some of our friends joining us on the show today uh, that... Some um, you'll be familiar with, I'm sure, Jesse Kelly. Maybe Jesse Kelly. He's only seven foot three, so he's got that going for him, which is nice. And uh, then we also have, I think, Benny Johnson from The Daily Caller might join us for some fun. And we got an expert from the Center for Immigration Studies who's going to be calling in. It's going to be just a, uh, a good, solid Freedom Hut Friday extravaganza. So strap in, team. We'll be right back. Congress should do this. If they can't do it, I will declare a national emergency. I have the absolute right to do it. It says as clear as you can. Now, what will happen? I'll be sued. It'll be brought to the Ninth Circuit. And maybe even though the wording is unambiguous, just like with the travel ban, it'll be appealed to the Ninth Circuit. And we'll probably lose there, too. And then hopefully we'll win in the Supreme Court. They'll always bring it to the Ninth Circuit. And then you never know what's going to come out of the Ninth Circuit. And you never know what's going to come out on appeal. But fortunately, we have a Supreme Court that's treated us very fairly. We have a a country that is under siege. You could actually, you know, a lot of people don't like the word invasion. We have a country that's being invaded by criminals and by drugs. And we're going to stop it. 
So I want the Democrats to come back to Washington and vote. Thank you very much. Strong messaging from the president. He's right and he knows it. And he's also right about how this is going to go down. If he does declare a national emergency, they will, excuse me, uh, they will find some way to pretend that that's, you know, beyond his authority. You know, there's, the, the, the truth is that the Democrat approach to law is to just question what every word in every statute means as a form of lawfare, right? So that they can read the statute. The statute can say the president may, in his authority, declare a state of emergency, and they will say, well, what is what is a state? What is an emergency? What is a president? I mean, the, this is this is nonsense, but unfortunately it works because they don't operate in good faith on these issues. It was very clear that the president had the right to institute what became known as the uh, the travel ban. It was very obvious that the president, under his executive authority, could do this. But they, a lot of judges pretended that he couldn't just because they didn't like it. Don't like. Don't like. Not legal. That's the way they approach it. Um, do I have some concerns about a national emergency? What? It, absolutely. I have concerns because Democrats are nuts. Democrats are wackos now. They, they don't operate in the same universe that many of the rest of us do. They really, yes, they, they'll, there'll be a national emergency on climate change, a national emergency on, you know, they're going to go from the war on all these things, you know, the war on poverty, the war on guns or gun violence, you know, to a national emergency for all these things. And that's going to be a, a, a future that, well, you know, the problem, see, here's the thing. I, I'm actually just catching myself as thinking about this. We're thinking to ourselves, oh, well, if Trump does it, then the president will be set. Meanwhile, look what Obama did. He shredded the Constitution and overreached as an executive many times on massive policy issues. Rewrote Obamacare in real time. and They did all kinds of stuff. So it's not like if Trump doesn't declare a national emergency, they won't. They'll do it anyway. So I'm starting to think, you know what? Declare that national emergency, man. Go for it. Let's do this. Let's win on this one. Let's get a win. How about that? I agree with the president. He's he's doing this thing right. Um, when we come back, I'll talk to you about my latest uh, making fun of CNN moment. That's coming up. And as a sign of the times in this debate on the shutdown, CNN asked if KUSI would provide a reporter to offer our local view of the debate, especially to learn if the wall works in San Diego. KUSI offered our own Dan Plan, who's reported many times that the wall is not an issue here. In fact, most officials believe it is effective. The issue we face is the migrants and the debate over their treatments. Now, knowing this, CNN declined to have us on their programs, which often present the wall as not required in other places, like the stretch of the Texas border the president visited earlier today. They didn't like what they heard from us. Just some background for you. Ooh, look at that, folks. You mean you mean to tell me, hold on a second. You mean that CNN reached out to a local news station that covers the San Diego border and border wall all the time? And when they found out that, uh, you know, they, they wanted to have somebody to talk to about this. And when they found out that this local, this is a local news station, it's not not some not a Fox affiliate or anything else. When they found out this local news station uh, says things like the wall works. All of a sudden, CNN's like, yeah, I don't want to be a part of this. They had no interest in them anymore. No interest at all. Look, I, I know this is not 
any kind of surprise to you, right? We, we all know that CNN is uh, perpetuating a, a giant and continuing journalistic fraud by pretending that they don't have uh, any kind of opinions and they're not pushing an agenda. I mean, that's it's laughable, right? It's 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 dumb. But I just like it when it when we finally get to hear it from fellow from some fellow journalists who have nothing, no dog in this fight other than just, hey, you know, kind of interesting. CNN disappeared on us after we we agreed to help them and, and provide uh, insight to them. But they don't they don't want to hear it. You know, they don't want to hear it. And uh, that's that's really where the where the conversation has gone now. People are on the left retreating into these little intellectual bunkers where they can have the uh, the usual suspects, you know, making fun of conservatives, saying that the wall is unnecessary, just just feeding them the stuff that they want to hear, not the stuff that's true. The stuff that's true doesn't really matter to them. The stuff that's true somehow gets, you know, gets swept aside in all of this. They, they just want to be told what they want to be told, and that's what you see with CNN. You see this happening in, in a whole bunch of places right now. Speaking of CNN also, you know, they, they were trying to have a debate last night with uh, with you know, Steve Cortez, who I've actually done some hits with at Fox. I've also worked with Anna Navarro over there. I think she's the worst public policy analyst and talking head on television. And that's that's saying a lot. But I think she may actually be the single worst one, the least insightful, the least intellectual. She's nasty. She's snide. Uh, she's she's honestly a, a, a not a nice person from my interactions with her and not good at her job. But CNN loves her because she plays this character on TV for them. And, and they th- and her their audience thinks that she's, you know, feisty and brilliant. Or I don't know what they think because they're idiots. But she while Steve Cortez is trying to talk to her about the about angel families and about the losses that have happened because the government our government has failed in its duty to secure the borders. It's meant that people have died because of illegal aliens that have, you know, drunk driving, uh, criminally negligent homicide, MS-13 murders, all kinds of stuff that's going on here. And this is this is how this exchange went. Play six. No, but even if I, that's fake news to say there are not. It's fake no, news. It's fake but, news but for you to inject to, if, BS okay, and say that it's look, equal to the real data. It's not Continue. BS. But even if I were to, <laughs> even if I were to grant you that, okay, the point is the illegal alien crime rate should be zero. It should be, you can do your nails. You know who can't do their nails? Are people who've been killed, Anna, by dangerous, known illegal aliens who've been allowed to stay in this country because of the leftist policies that people like you promote. Steve Cortez is a pretty, pretty competent uh, pundit, I gotta say. I, I think Steve does a good job. I, I don't, I, I got no beef with Steve at all. He's a nice guy, does a good job. You know, he's, he's a conservative, and he's over at CNN, so he's just taking all kinds of all kinds of nonsense all the time. I know what that's like. But Anna Navarro, you didn't even really hear her there. She kind of just sighed. She started fighting. He's talking about people dying from illegal immigrants. Anna Navarro starts filing her nails on TV, which is, I would note, so disrespectful. If I did something like that to Anna Navarro, oh my gosh, they would say it's racist. They would say, you know, all these other things. But they make they make all these uh, all these these special rules up for their preferred libs on tv they can act like uh they can act in in such a rude fashion and act in such a a nasty way and never face any consequences because cnn's a joke it's a joke 
they should just be honest about what they are now. I mean, I, you know, they they still are coasting on this this brand of the the real place for TV journalism, but it, it's no it's no longer a, a truth if it ever was a truth, which I, I would argue it was never true. It's just gotten a lot less true now. But they've been so harmful in this discussion uh, about the border and, and what's really going on there and what the truth is of border security measures that Trump is trying is trying to push. And and they're so they're so nasty about it all, too. Um, that's why I, I like when uh, I don't know how many I know a lot of you aren't on Twitter, but there's this meme with Jim Acosta, whatever Jim Acosta starts making stories about himself, which is all that guy does. I mean, he's really a buffoon. He doesn't he doesn't seem very smart at all. Uh, whenever he does it, though, people will tweet Dear Diary at him. Dear Diary. And then then whatever Jim Acosta's thing is, the whole point is that it's another, they'll respond to Jim Acosta, so it's like a dear, it's like a, a diary entry from him. President Trump did that to him on Twitter yesterday. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. And and from what I understand, uh, Acosta today, I, I, I read Acosta today, said, you know, thank you sarcastically to the president for doing that. But I'm glad we have a president who calls them out for this this stuff. I'm glad we have a president who doesn't just uh, doesn't just sit back and, and let the media run around and, and act like a bunch of, of spoiled brats all the time because that's what they are and, and somebody should finally tell. You know, you'll notice for a while we haven't heard, oh, Trump is beating up so much on the media and he's making it dangerous for us. It's not dangerous for the media. This is, it's just stupid. That's always, that's always been a, a crybaby point. Yeah, any job can be dangerous. Maniacs can come after you at any job. Maniacs will come after you because they just get obsessed with you when you walk out your front door. You know, you never know. But the media loves, loves to run around and act like they're just so brave. I, I want to talk to you about how the Democrats are um, engaging in, uh, Democrats in the Senate, for example, engaging in anti-Catholic bigotry that ties right into the looming battle over the Supreme Court. It's an important story. That's coming up. The Democratic Party has a problem with traditional believing Christians. There's there's no question about it, okay? I, and I know that a lot of people would say, oh, Buck, but what about this, you know, social justice pastor here, or what about this? I'm not saying that all of them do, or, but there, there's clearly an issue. If you are a rabid anti-Christian atheist, chances are you're a Democrat. Not always, but generally speaking. And, and if you're going to look for government policy that tramples on religious freedom, whether it's suing the little sisters of the poor or forcing people to take down a, a cross that was put along the side of a highway to commemorate somebody getting killed there or, you know, any number of things. It comes from the left. The left is where hostility to Christian and, and uh, traditional Jewish faith comes from. Not to his, you know, Islamic faith, no. Islamic faith, they have no hostility at all. They have no problem with it, which is a whole other discussion that ties into uh, intersectionality and identity politics and the way that the left views Islam as a non-white religion and therefore it's inherently in a, a religion of the oppressed, even though it's the second largest religion in the world and it's the majority religion uh, in, gosh, I don't know, 40, 50 countries, something like that, maybe 60 countries. So... Uh, that's that's just a, a bit of a underlying premise that I want to put out there before I get into this story because you know things are going to get as soon as we find out that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and I really do believe it if she heaven forbid if something happens to her but she is still 
you know, she could be incapacitated in some way. And Libs will say that she's still, you know, sitting on the Supreme Court and that's that. It does not matter. They are absolutely all in on Ruth Bader Ginsburg until there's a new president. They don't care what they don't care what they have to do. But they're also preparing for the fight that they might not be able to stop from happening, which would occur if there is a uh, a vacancy that that opens up. But maybe it's not Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Maybe it's another vacancy. Maybe another Supreme Court justice gets gets tired, wants to go fly fish. Who knows? But uh, Kamala Harris, who is now, I think, considered by a lot of insider types, at least, the frontrunner for the Democrat 2020 nomination. And the the frontrunner status is going to change hundreds of times between now and the actual primary. But she has shown us uh, a side of, of her that is, is indicative of, of where the Democrats are on, on, many, uh, on many issues that deal with Catholics who believe in Catholic doctrine. And, and I will not get into a long, a long discussion right now about I don't know how Catholics vote for Nancy Pelosi. I don't know how Catholics vote for Joe Biden. I, I don't understand if you really believe you know, if you're somebody who believes and if you're a Catholic and you believe in church doctrine and you believe in, in the dogma, uh, then you would have to be pro-life. You would have to be for traditional marriages between a, a man and a woman. And um, I, so I, I don't know how people who think those things believe those things and, and think that they're moral issues of especially on the life issue. The marriage issue, I think, is, is fuzzier for a lot of people, but um on the issue of life, I don't know how that doesn't, I, I, I really mean that. I don't know what these, a lot of these Catholics that I know are, are thinking. You know, you get these Catholics that are all about open borders and social justice. And I'm like, wait, what? what, what what's going on here? You're going to support the party that is for all kinds of just outright immorality? Anyway, Kamala Harris posed a series of questions recently uh, to Brian Boucher, who is President Trump's nominee for the dist- for district court in Nebraska. Here's her third question. Since 1993, you have been a member of the Knights of Columbus, an all-male society comprised primarily of Catholic men. In 2016, Carl Anderson, leader of the Knights of Columbus, described abortion as a legal regime that has resulted in more than 40 million deaths. Mr. Anderson went on to say that abortion is the killing of the innocent on a massive scale. Were you aware that the Knights of Columbus opposed a woman's right to choose when you joined the organization? Harris wasn't finished there. She followed up with, quote, were you aware that the Knights of Columbus opposed marriage equality when you joined the organization? And have you in any way ever assisted with or contributed to advocacy against women's reproductive rights? This is bigotry. By the way, this is anti-Catholic bigotry that is on display. And Democrats do this all the time. They they did this uh, with, what was her name, um, Feinstein, saying the dogma lives strongly within you to a, uh, to a nominee not that long ago who was a Catholic. And, and what you see here is, first of all, I mean, the hostility to the, the Knights of Columbus. The Knights of Columbus is, a, is the largest fraternal Catholic organization, I think, that there that that there is it's got two million members it was founded um by a priest in connecticut i believe memory serves uh back in 1881 a parish meeting and that was in 1881 and now it's an organization of two million people that believes in charity patriotism and faith 
And now your membership in the Knights of Columbus is a, a point of not just inquiry, but a point of attack for Democrats. And that, uh, that Kamala Harris thinks that she can get away with this. And she can, by the way, because people will excuse it. And they'll, they, they, they have no problem creating a religious test for federal judges, for Supreme Court nominees, um, because that's how devoted they are to continuing what she calls the women's right to choose, which is the right to an abortion, which is to kill a baby. And th- that's, I would note, what you're going to see come up. If there's, if there's a seat that opens for Ruth Bader Ginsburg or any other liberal on the court, um, the most likely candidate still is Amy Coney Barrett. That could change, but it'll be Amy Coney Barrett who is a female Catholic and a devout Catholic with many, many children. And the ugliness that you're going to see is all about a woman's, quote, right to choose, essentially a legalized regime for abortion. That's what it is. We should call it what it is. And being a Catholic, Democrats will be willing to do this. Being a Catholic, they will say, who is a believing Catholic, not a kind of Christmas and Easter wishy-washy Catholic, uh, a believing Catholic will be a disqualifying uh, a disqualifying condition for an open Supreme Court seat. Think about if they applied that logic to, and they already do this. They already gang up on Catholics who are going to be judges in general. But think about if they did that to any other religion. Can you imagine asking any questions of a Jewish or Muslim jurist based upon the tenets of the faith and essentially say, you can't be trusted to be a, a real judge who's impartial and applies the law because of, your faith tradition, can you imagine what the backlash would be to that? How understandably upset people would be in in response to that? Uh, but not with Catholics, not with Catholics, and not I would know, not with any uh, Christian denomination in this country. Although Catholics get it particularly, believing Catholics get it particularly rough from the left. Um, and and I, I would just note that uh, there's a little bit of irony here as well because when Michael uh, McGivney, who's the the Catholic priest who founded what became the Knights of Columbus, named for Christopher Columbus, by the way, um, back in uh, in Connecticut, it was because Catholics were being discriminated against. We don't often talk about this in this country anymore, but you know the uh, Ku Klux Klan hated Catholics. That's what one of the K's is supposed to stand for. Uh, the, they didn't like Catholics. Um, the American society more generally was very discriminatory against Catholics, especially around the turn of the 20th century. Um, so, you know, it was a big deal when JFK became the first Catholic president. Uh, yeah, this, there's some stuff here. There's some stuff here. And there's a little bit of discrimination coming back into this in a way that I think it's going to get blown into the open if you have that open Supreme Court seat. Being a Catholic who is a believing Catholic will be used as a disqualifier, a litmus test. For the Supreme Court, that's what the that's what the libs, the left, will be willing to do. It's disgusting, but as we know from the Kavanaugh hearings, they have no principles, they have no no honor or integrity to protect. They just want to protect power, and they think that that seat is owed to their ideology, one way or another. It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be tense. Global Verification Network, the only dual-certified, veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company out there in the whole country, folks. They are the people you need to go to 
If you're in an HR department, if you've got a small business or a huge business, have them do your background checks. Some of you probably already have a contract with somebody else to do this. Global Verification does it better, smarter, and more efficiently for you. And if you have a specific issue or problem, they tailor the program to your needs, okay? They are independently certified by the National Veteran Business Development Council, and that's the only minority spend certification recognized by the billion-dollar roundtable. These guys are the ones you need to go to. They are risk mitigation experts that you can see for yourself. Go to mygvn.com. Again, the website is mygvn.com, or call 877-695-1179 for Global Verification Network. Make sure you tell them Buck Sexton sent you. Leave no stone unturned. We continue to see an influx of people, as you described, as humanitarian crisis. Yesterday, we had 450 apprehensions, Mr. President. Yesterday alone, you had 400. 450 out of that, 133 from countries other than the Central American countries in Mexico. India, we apprehended some Pakistanis. We had some folks from Romania, on and on and on. How many Pakistanis yesterday? Two yesterday. Just yesterday, down at the... Uh, Rio Grande section of the border with president visiting McAllen, Texas. You heard there from a uh, border patrol agent that you had not just 450 apprehensions in that one sector that one day, some from India, Pakistan, and Romania. What is going on at the border? And how big of a crisis is this really? We have Art Arthur joining us now. He is a resident fellow in law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies. Art, thanks so much. Thank you for having me, Buck. All right. So how how would you gauge the situation right now at the border? You know, what is the truth of of how this is or is not a crisis? Oh, it's it's a huge crisis right now. About 61 percent of all the uh, migrants who are being apprehended along that border are family units or unaccompanied alien children. This is uh, an astounding number that keeps going up month by month, uh, particularly compared to the early days of the Trump administration. When I was uh, a trial attorney with the INS, when I started out as an immigration judge back in 2006, most of the aliens we saw crossing over that border were, you know, single adult males from Mexico. Now we're almost, uh, you know, again, the majority of the people that we're seeing are families with children from Central America, particularly from three Central American countries, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. But as the clip uh, indicated, we're also seeing people from other countries, including Pakistan, Romania, all over the world, that are taking advantage of our lax border policies to come to the United States. So it's a crisis. And how do we? How should we handle this crisis? I mean, if you were to give me, yes, the, the, the wall is the center of the policy fight right now, but if we really wanted what could be considered a a secure border, that doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean that there can't be a cartel tunnel somewhere and, you know, that, that people aren't going to get through here and there. But if we wanted something that that I think there could be agreement deserves to be called secure, what do we what do we have to do? Or how do we well, fix it? The most important thing that we can do is to close the loopholes that are being exploited by the smugglers and by those aliens uh, who are coming to the border. Right now, under uh, a 21-year-old settlement agreement that was reached by the Clinton administration, uh, people are, uh, children are released after 20 days. This is the Flores no decree, right? Come with their What's that? Flores, right? Flores settlement agreement. Uh, it doesn't matter whether they come with their parents or without their parents. And the fact is that the uh, Trump administration has a policy of not separating families. So if uh, the children get released, the adults get released. And that's why we're getting 
61% of the people uh, showing up at the border being uh, family units and kids because they know that they're going to get released. So so the status right now, and I think that there's a lot of a lot of people are reporting on what they want to report on here and not necessarily what's really going on. Um, the, the status right now is if you show up from from any foreign country, if you show up at our southern border with somebody who is a minor, what do you have to do to get into the country? And I mean, who's being turned away in that situation? Is anyone being turned away in that situation right away? Well, What's supposed to happen is that they're uh, supposed to be processed for expedited removal, and as that sounds, uh, they don't appear before an immigration judge. An immigration officer makes the determination. Uh, we get them travel documents, and we send them back home. That's how it's supposed to work. But if you claim credible fear, uh, then you get to have an interview with an asylum officer, and about 89% of all aliens who are interviewed by asylum officers are found to have a credible fear. It's a very low standard. It's lower than the standard for asylum, well-founded fear of persecution. Uh, and so consequently, 89% of all the people who claim credible fear uh, are admitted to the United States so they can apply for asylum before an immigration judge. But at the end of the day, nationals of those three countries, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, last year in FY2018, 9% of those asylum claims were actually granted. So 89% were found to have credible fear, 9% got asylum. That's a huge disconnect uh, that is allowing these folks into the United States. And again, these hearings can take up to eight years to be done. Do we do we have good numbers, Art, on, on what, so what you just told me is that of the people who claim credible fear, only nine percent so basically one in ten are actually given asylum in this country but what what about the 90 percent i mean they're they're supposed to be removed do we know how many are actually being removed uh very few uh exceptionally less than 10 percent are being removed annually uh and we have about we have more than 900,000 alien absconders in the United States and but those are people who have already had their due process have had their day in court uh have been given the opportunity to make an application before an immigration judge have been ordered removed uh but who remain in the United States so that's about 10% of the illegal alien population in this country a little bit less but still it's a huge number what what can you tell us about the about research that you've done on on barriers and and what we should know about the sectors of our southern border that do in fact have fencing barriers walls whatever the whatever the specifics may be well again uh i don't want to show my age but i've been around immigration for a long time and you know i've seen uh, the various operations that we've done. Operation Hold the Line in El Paso. They put up a wall. Uh, the number of illegal entrants, you know, dropped dramatically. Uh, Operation Gatekeeper. We put up a wall in San Diego, and the numbers dropped dramatically. Yuma, Arizona. Uh, we put up a wall. The numbers dropped dramatically. These things work. The walls work uh, where we have them, and what they do is they actually push. Uh, attempted migrants or attempted illegal migrants into more remote areas uh, where it's more difficult to cross. The harder we make it for those folks to cross, the fewer people, logically, who would be attempting to cross. But, you know, these, these, these laws, including Flores uh, and the Credible Fear Standard, act like the, like the witch's house and Hansel and Gretel. You know, they're, they're an attractive nuisance that draw people to those dangerous parts of the border. 
Uh, and unfortunately, that's why we saw two children die last month because the parents are attempting to make entry uh, through, you know, desolate remote areas rather than simply going to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in their own country and making their uh, refugee claims there, which is what they should be doing, or alternatively, applying for asylum in Mexico. Mexico is an asylum-granting country and actually has more lenient asylum laws than we do in the United States. The fact that these people are not doing that suggests that they're economic migrants and not actually uh, refugees fleeing persecution. There has been some reporting. We're speaking to R. Arthur, everybody. He's a uh, resident fellow in law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies. There's been some reporting that another uh, caravan, convoy, whatever we call it, is is gathering in Honduras to make its way all the way up the U.S.-Mexico border. And at least this time around, I think we won't be told, oh, it will never get there. They'll just they'll it'll just dissipate because people have realized that there are there are buses and trains and ways to to move faster than just on foot. Um, what what happens right now under U.S. policy if if we get, let's say, another thousand migrants from Honduras show up at our border, they just get to claim credible fear and be led into the United States. Is that how it goes? That's correct. Uh, that's why the president's policy of, uh, you know, not allowing individuals who enter the United States uh, illegally to claim asylum, to get them to the ports of entry. Mexico has indicated that they'll take care of them while they're in Mexico uh, so that they can be processed uh, in an orderly fashion at the ports of entry rather than, you know, attempting to enter through the boot heel of New Mexico, which is the most desolate place I've ever been to. Uh, and, you know, run the risk of them or their children dying. It's also important to note the dangers that are posed by the smugglers. About, uh, I think it's something like 31% of all female migrants uh, who make that journey are sexually assaulted. Two-thirds of, of uh, the migrants in total are uh, assaulted in one way or the other, subject to some sort of violence. So this is an amazingly dangerous process by which these people enter the United States. And again, the humanitarian thing to do is to process them in the first country that they come to, Mexico, or alternatively, have them go to the UNHCR in their own country to make their refugee claims, and they can be processed through there. Art, do you think that the president declaring an emergency is is the right? I mean, you're a fellow in, in law and policy. Do you think that this is the right move if, if in fact, the Democrats don't give him a single a single dollar for additional barrier construction, which seems to be the direction this is heading? Well, Ms. Pelosi said that she would give one dollar. So, I mean, oh, OK, fair um, point. I don't think that's going to be enough to do a whole lot of good. The um, but declaring a national emergency in response to a humanitarian crisis probably would be something that would be appropriate. It's something that the president has the authority to do. But I think that that's something that he's actually going to be rather reluctant to do. One of the reasons why, amongst the reasons why the Obama administration was criticized was because they did uh, too much through administrative action. They granted amnesty, temporary amnesty, albeit to, you know, uh, 690,000 dreamers. Uh, they continued uh, temporary protected status for, you know, dozens of years for, you know, nationals of countries uh, who had long since moved past the crises that prompted uh, those declarations to begin with. So, again, the president, you know, campaigned against uh, things that uh, President Obama did, which was seizing too much power. I think the president's going to be very reluctant to use that power himself, but he may have to yet. Art Arthur, everybody, from the Center for Immigration Studies, CIS.org, if you want to see their latest research. And uh, Art, we always appreciate you making the time. Thank you, Buck. I greatly appreciate you having me.
Team, we'll be right back. You know what's smart? Kicking off 2019 by planning out which roles your business needs to hire for. You know what else is smart? Using ZipRecruiter to start the new year off strong. That's right, ZipRecruiter.com to hire the right people. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience and actively invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S., and this rating comes from trusted hiring sites like Trustpilot with over a 1,000 reviews. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. If you love this show, show your support, team. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash buck for whatever your job is, wherever you are across the country, because ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Working people have done their share. For decades, working people have gotten more and more productive. At the same time, they've gotten a smaller and smaller share of the wealth they create. Here's the truth. Brothers and sisters, there's plenty of money in the world. There's plenty of money in this city. It's just in the wrong hands. That is some pretty radical rhetoric coming from the mayor of the largest city in the United States. That's uh, de Blasio really starting to unleash that that, that progressive, that really that Marxist. You know, I mean, de Blasio... I think he was the one who went and hung out with the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, if memory serves. I mean, he he really is, or he went down to Cuba to hang out with, you know, he's one of these guys who like to do a little bit of commie tourism back in the day. Uh, you know, de, de Blasio is somebody who, you know, went to Yale, you know, he, he's he's checked all the boxes for the liberal elite and yet pretends to be at, at his core what, essentially a Marxist rabble rouser. But think about that. There's plenty of wealth in this city. It's just in the wrong hands. In the wrong hands. This is not, oh, we need to have a, a, a more you know, robust social safety net. This is not, you know, our city's doing great. Let's improve public services. You know, the usual rhetoric you hear from Democrats and Republicans. This is something else. And it's coming from a guy who we've started to see now getting more attention to the national stage for pushing policies that are 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 flatly socialist. I mean, are, are just openly state confiscation of resources to give resources to other people on the basis of because we say so and 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 telling businesses that they have to transfer more of their resources, more of their money to either employees or to unions or w- whatever it may be. But I think that you're going to hear more of this now. Um, I think that the the progressives can't help themselves. I don't think that they are going to run Joe Biden for 2020. I, I think that the the anger that has festered within the Democratic Party in the Trump era and, and a lot of the anger also at the Hillary establishment of the Democratic Party, because remember, Hillary was supposed to the biggest selling point for Hillary to the hard left which didn't win over all the Bernie Sanders people, to be sure. But but the biggest selling point that they had was uh, 
that Hillary was going to win. She she was somebody you were supposed to vote for because she was going to win. But now what we see is something uh, quite different on the left. They know that obviously Hillary didn't win. And for all the Russia collusion talk and everything else, that's never it's never going to change. OK, there there's no redo for the election. And, you know, Hillary's out of the picture. I, I finally now believe that she's done. I, what? What happened was, I mean, I, I've, I've come to accept that for whatever reason, Hillary knows that it's all over. Um, that could change. But I think there's such a crowded field of of Democrats. They're going to try to muscle in and, and be the standard bearer for the party. There's just no way. But you're going to, you know, the, the the rhetoric and the attitudes of the progressive left that have been, you know, shown to us in the Kavanaugh hearing, shown to us in, you know, these by these Antifa groups and these uh, harassment outfits that show up and yell at people at restaurants and 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 are really aggressive and crazy. Uh, that that means that you're going to have increasingly radical rhetoric used for na- by national level Democrat politicians. I, I really think that's going to happen now, uh, especially heading into the election, uh, because these these people, you know, the ones who are are from the Alinskyite school of Democrat community organizing, agitation, activism, which is uh, most of the of the Democrats that you can think of, or at least whether they've studied Alinsky, they at least um, uh, they at least deploy similar rhetoric and mirror many of the Alinsky tactics. They also realize that you know much of your your success as a radical comes an understanding when the time is right you have to you know you have to strike when the iron is hot you have to hit when you have your opening and i believe that the progressives think that they they have an opening right now when we've gotten a little bit as a country a little fat and happy you know we've we've had this this big bull market for a long time we've had a lot of prosperity it's been you know, and yeah, it has not been equally shared, but overall, if you look at it, I mean, you'd the, the truth is people don't want to hear this. You would be in terms of your day to day life. You'd rather be middle class today than you would in 1950. No one wants to hear that, but it's true uh, on a material prosperity level. I'm not saying on a, you know, spiritual and, and social level, but in terms of what you've got access to now versus what you had access to then, we are we are all personally uh, wealthier overwhelmingly in this country than we would have been. 60 years ago, but de Blasio saying the money's in the wrong hands. You know, this is this is otherizing those who are doing well in a way that uh, that that can lead to some very ugly policies. And those ugly policies can lead to some really uh, difficult and, and dangerous times. So I'll just note, I mean, that that really struck me, you know, that that the rich are exploiting you that it's not really their money, it should be your money. This isn't what you would think that you'd hear from the mayor of the biggest city in the country. This is the stuff that you'd hear from some street corner rabble rouser activist type. But remember, we had a a street activist in the Alinskyite mold from Chicago who was president for eight years and wanted to fundamentally transform the country. We're going to have another one who thinks he's going to complete Obama's work uh, just wait and see. That's what they're going to put up for the 2020 election. 
AI will increasingly replace repetitive jobs, not just for blue-collar work, but a lot of white-collar work. A lot of things will become automated. We'll have automated stores, uh, automated restaurants, and uh, all together in 15 years, that's going to uh, displace uh, about 40% of jobs in the world. 40% of jobs in the world might, uh, might go away. Now, this is, I think, the single most important social and economic uh, issue that we're going to have to face of the next 50 years, honestly. Um, I, and I, I, I'm the first to admit that no one can predict the future, so who knows? We could have some strain of flu that goes crazy and kills 60 million people, which is what happened. I think 40 million were killed by Spanish influenza back in the early 20th century. It's flu season, but I got told by a guy who's senior at CDC on Rising. Was it CDC or was one of those places? He's like, get your flu shot, Buck. I said, all right, all right, I'll get it. But back to the issue at hand here. Uh, this is a venture capitalist and and artificial intelligence pioneer named Kai Fu Lee, who is saying what many other uh, top minds in technology and in venture capital and and essentially some of the, the highest performing uh, entrepreneurs out there are saying about all this. And that is that they think that we are heading into a period where there's just going to be massive disruptions to labor. And, you know, people in the past have said that this was going to be a problem and, and they were wrong, right? That there's there's definitely a a tradition of exaggeration around, oh, all these all the jobs are going to go away. What's going to happen? This this brings me to I, I think I've even at a previous time done a history on the show of the Luddite movement. And it had to do with uh, automated uh, looms for weavers in in the U.K. And it was this this apocryphal character known as Ned Ludd, who was, you know, gonna, who was supposed to have been the the originator of this notion that we should they should destroy the looms. But, you know, there is something very different now about the kind of technological leaps that we are talking about and what it's going to mean uh, for for people to do labor, meaning to do, especially if you're doing a physical task, right? If you're doing a physical task, how is that going to continue on when machinery is going to do this? And this is what, what brings up this conversation about, uh, and there's so many facets to this, and it's one of, it's going to be a, a continuing theme here on the show. We're going to talk about automation and not just job losses, but the way it's going to reconstruct many societies and the way it's going to change how we uh, how we interact with each other and what it means for wealth generation, uh, the wealth gap that is a very real problem in many societies. I think it's going to become a bigger problem even in our society. Uh, it'll lead to social uh, disruption and perhaps even revolutions in some places. I mean, this is really, really serious stuff. Uh, but that's that's why I want to continue to look at this, because it, it also goes to some of what Tucker Carlson's monologue that went viral and has gotten so much attention goes to, which is, you know, people start talking about a massive welfare state and universal basic income and and these ideas where work will be 
if not devalued, but I think you could argue it will be devalued, but work also will become for more people uh, considered to be extraneous and that the state will just have an obligation to provide for people. And because we'll be living in a time of so much technology and abundance and uh, and relative comfort, there will be this sense that maybe people don't have to work. And, and you know, this, this then reminds me of a, a uh, story that I was told back in when I was in the when I was at St. David's, which was a Catholic school I went to in New York City. We had this one uh, teacher who and I don't remember the the parable or the 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 details of it, but he told this story about how this guy was in what he thought was heaven, and all and he could he any food he wanted would appear, any place he wanted to be he could be. He knew he had died, but any. any you know, any woman whose company he wanted would appear. And it sounds like heaven. It sounds like heaven. And then he would ask the person who was granting all these wishes, you know, I, all I want is is work. I want I want to I want to build something. I want to do something. I want to challenge. I want to task. He said, oh, no, you can't have that. And he said, then the, the story wasn't like he was telling the story to little kids, but the story was, no, you're actually in hell. You're in hell and your hell is that you have to only have those things that you thought you wanted so badly in life and those things that you were willing to sacrifice for and give up your dignity and your honor and be immoral trying to achieve. And now you have that for eternity. And what you can't have is to build, to construct, to create, to be additive, right? to, to challenge yourself. And now, look, it's, it's a little bit of a simplistic story, but you, you get the idea. Jordan Peterson does a, he he has a better you know uh, Jordan Peterson who's now the intellectual dark dark web guy he used to come on this show way back then I had Jordan Peterson on this show in 2017 when he was getting known as the Canadian professor who wouldn't use the wrong pronoun for people just based on what they wanted and and I'm just saying you know we we're kind of trendsetters here the freedom of those who listen to the show know you know we had Jordan Peterson on before anybody I had Candace Owen on this show before uh, anybody knew who she was. Yeah, I'm just saying. People said, oh, you're going to have Red Pill Black on. That was what her her uh, site was or her YouTube channel is called. So I'm just saying we're trendsetters here. But Jordan Peterson tells this, uh, or rather writes, oh, no, actually I've, I can't remember if I read what he wrote or if I heard him in a speech. But he tells this story where, you know, you, you think when you're working and engaged in your day-to-day life, heaven is being on a beautiful beach Drinking margaritas without a care in the world. And he, he says, you know, really play that out. Play that out in your mind. How does that go? Okay, if, if I could make that happen for you. Now, now you're on a beach. It's the most gorgeous beach in the world. And you don't even, you don't have to worry about money. They're just going to let you stay on that beach. You're staying in a beautiful hotel. They're bringing you margaritas every day. He's like, okay, maybe for two weeks, it's paradise. Maybe for six weeks, it's, it's paradise. He says, but... You get a couple months into this, you realize you're not doing anything. You're not productive. You're probably getting fat from just drinking margaritas. But they're delicious, but they're terrible for you. Uh, you're you're getting soft, and you're going to feel a lack of purpose at some point. And you're going to want to do something with yourself. You have to get up and want to do something, whether it's taking care of your family or going to an office or a job or a work site or whatever it may be. People need purpose. And you can get purpose in all kinds of things. 
your, you know, the way that you interact with your fellow human beings. Are you kind? Are you helpful? Are you, are you decent to them? But for a lot of people, especially, yes, especially for men in the male psyche, oh my gosh, microaggression. Purpose comes from work, as in in the workplace. The work that's done in the home is every bit as important. And I think one of the great social uh, dysfunctions of the 20th century, or really the late, the second half of the 20th century, is this idea of uh, putting down uh, women raising families as as important employment. It is the most important employment a society has. It is as important as any other job there is. It's not necessarily economically rewarded the way that doing jobs are, but it is as important for society and based on what I'm told by people who actually do it, as rewarding as anything you can do in life. I just wish our society hadn't decided to listen to these radical feminists who are miserable, by the way. They're miserable. Every time I talk to some radical liberal feminist, misery is what I get away, is what I get from them. Oh, yeah, you know, they're a professor of such and such. They're in their 50s. They have a life partner, male or female. I don't care. It doesn't matter. But, they, you know, they don't want to call it a marriage. And, and you know, they, they don't have kids. And they, you know, they chase their career. And now they're, you know, they're boomers, maybe late boomers. And for what? For what? They just, they, but they, they put down all their friends who got married and raised families. You know, put them down for decades. Uh, that's... It's a, it's a recipe for misery. I just see it. I, I see it in the in the the uh, the generation above me, and so. But you know, Jordan Peterson's point with it is the same point that I'm making, which is that you know you need purpose, and once you start taking work away from men as as a purpose they have in their day to day life, and of course, remember, part of the purpose is you go to work not just to do that productive thing, but also to then enjoy the fruits of your labor. And take care of your family or take care of yourself if you don't have a family. But that this is this is the a central part of our social existence. And now that a lot of this is going to be automated, a lot of this is going to be coming from machinery and AI programs. This is this is going to be very disruptive. Yeah, maybe there are other jobs we can't think of yet. The jobs of the future, people will say. Maybe there are jobs we can't even imagine, you know, person that takes care of the, you know, automated butler that's bringing you everything, right? The person that fixes it. There will be things, but that doesn't mean there won't be social disruptions and upheaval in the meantime. And look back throughout history. Yeah, we push through things, but maybe we go through a 50-year period of of regression. You know, maybe we go through a 50 a 50-year period of upheaval and you know, societal strife. It's not all just going to be Peaches, roses, unicorns, and fairy tales. Peaches are delicious. So that's that's important to keep in mind as we look at immigration as well. Because here is what the Democrats and the libertarian open borders types, here's, here's what they don't get into, here's what they don't address. And I think it's really essential that we keep it in mind as we talk about all this. The immigrant population that is coming into the country illegally or that is scamming the system is overwhelmingly from uh, you know, third world countries, developing countries now where they, they don't speak English, they don't have higher education, and they're coming into an economy where the stratification between those who can compete in a knowledge-based economy and those who can't is getting wider and wider all the time. That is not a recipe for 
happiness and cohesion in this society, and it is only a recipe for a larger state, higher taxes, and heavier burdens upon the productive class in this country uh, imposed by the state. So, you know, this, the massive waves over time of, of unskilled labor uh, that don't compete at the same, in the same kinds of jobs uh, as the increasingly separate elite, if you will, the, the knowledge workers in this country, that's going to get bigger and bigger. It's going to get worse. And there's also the people in this country that aren't able haven't been given the opportunity to haven't been, haven't been given the resources to compete at that level. You know, they feel like they're being displaced and this is this is all a very complicated and if we don't deal with it as a country and as a society, I think a uh, a dangerous mix. So, AI, jobs of the future, fascinating great stuff, but it's going to have real social implications that we need to understand. What the administration is clearly demonstrating here is that despite the, the decision to withdraw from Syria uh, according to the conditions that presidents imposed, we are not withdrawing from the Middle East. We are, we are providing indispensable leadership to stand up and confront the Iranians who are clearly the strategic threat to the Middle East. What Secretary Pompeo is doing, uh, I certainly applaud. He, he's bringing countries from Asia, Europe. Africa, the Western Hemisphere, and obviously the Middle East together to deal with this, this imposing threat to the region because they're not just a regional threat, mm -hmm. they're a global threat in terms of sponsoring terrorism around the world. So today the, you just uh, had the first reports about U.S. troop presence getting drawn down in, in Syria. It's going to be a while, it's going to take some time, but I, I have said I think that as long as it is done in this way, in a deliberate fashion, that make sure that there are protections for the Kurds against the, the Turks and the possibility of Turkish, particularly Turkish airstrikes. Um, and, and as long as we maintain close ties to the Turks, I mean, to, pardon me, to the Kurds on the ground, um, meaning that we're just next door, we're just over the hill, and, uh, you know, we're, we're there. If they really need us, we could, you know, spin up some Apaches or some F-16s and, you know, the, the cavalry's over that next ridge, us being the United States being the cavalry, that not extending our mission and our presence in Syria is the right thing. That we, we don't have a role to play in a continued military occupation of what is now liberated Syria from the Islamic State. We also need to prepare for a future in which the Iranians continue their presence in Syria regardless of what we do, regardless of our positions and our activities, and not to overextend ourselves. You know, which is also why I would note that there's this summit. Pompeo gave this speech, very good speech, by the way, on this international summit on Iran. I mean, Lee Zeldin talked a bit about this. Play clip 15. It's American leadership. This is American exceptional, exceptionalism. You have a, a, an important initiative to bring dozens of countries together when you make a decision to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal uh, and sanctions are reimposed. You know, th there's a difference between just having U.S. sanctions reimposed versus uh, the international community reimposing sanctions as well. Uh, U.S. sanctions alone, very powerful. Uh, having more countries on board is important. Uh, additionally, you have other Middle Eastern countries 
that also view Iranian aggression as an existential threat to their nation and also to their region. Uh, so beyond just bilateral diplomacy, multilateral diplomacy, and ramping up economic pressure, uh, is the need for coalitions and leadership on the parts of other nations and involvement. So look, it's, it's got to be a, a multi-pronged effort here. It's going to take a long time. And it's essentially just creating these allegiances and, and, and making sure that we're backing allies to keep the Iranians in check. So, But the, the way to keep the Iranians in check is not to just keep putting a U.S. military presence on the ground in country after country, uh, which is what we were on schedule to do. We've got U.S. military in Yemen, U.S. military in Syria, U.S. military in Iraq, U.S. military in uh, you know, you go down to you know, Bahrain. We got the Fifth Fleet, although we have a base there. But anyway, we just got we got we got guys everywhere in the Middle East right now. Enough is enough. Trump understands. Yeah, he's not the the down in the weeds guy with a tremendous amount of you know cultural knowledge about what's going on in Syria. Trump understands that we've got to turn the tide here and stop putting U.S. boots on the ground to solve problems. We got to find other ways to solve those problems. Man, I had an early day today, and I had to talk to a bunch of libs on set. We had a bunch of lib guests, and some of them were being a little grumpy about Trump's wall. But you know what? I think all they need is a delicious cup of some Black Rifle coffee. That's all I needed. Got my day going just great. Check it out for yourself. Black Rifle coffee is roast to order. It guarantees you fresh, delicious coffee with every order because it comes right to your door. And Black Rifle, which is founded by veterans, gives a portion of their sales to veteran first responder causes. These are awesome guys. They are great patriots, and they make delicious coffee, all right? Nothing cures a bad attitude like starting your day off with the most American, patriotic, freedom-loving coffee ever, Black Rifle Coffee. Everybody listening, go check it out yourself. Visit blackriflecoffee.com slash buck and receive 15% off your order. It's a great deal. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. Again, one more time, Black riflecoffee.com slash buck. President has said that if the Congress doesn't act and we're not, uh, then I will do this by myself using the powers I have. Now's the time to exercise that option. If the end game is an emergency declaration by the president, do it, do it now. Lindsey Graham was saying, throw down President Trump. Throw down. Lindsey Graham still... Still strutting his stuff after that uh, uh, Bravo performance at the Kavanaugh hearings this past summer. But is this is this the right move? How does this whole thing end? Well, we, we've got some some wisdom coming your way, courtesy of Houston, Texas, right now. Our friend Jesse Kelly, who want to come hang out. It is a Friday. He is the host of the Jesse Kelly Show, which you can hear down on the iHeart affiliate in Houston, Texas, on nine fifty K. PRC Monday through Fridays. Mr. Jesse Kelly, great to have you, sir. Good to be here, Buck. And this ends ugly, I think, one way or the other. Because he can't if he declares a state of emergency, half the Republicans are going to be mad about it. Politically, he should. If we're just talking about reelection, politically he should, because he has to have some kind of wall built for reelection. But man, is that a bad precedent for when the next scumbag gets elected off it, it is it is scary because you see a normal person would look at this situation at the border and say okay that it is a crisis okay you got drugs flowing through people are dying you got bad laws in place congress is not acting congress is not changing this 
Uh, and it's not really in Congress's purview to change some of it in terms of, you know, greater border patrol activity and the, and the law enforcement component of it. That's an executive branch function. So there's all these things. But you're right. See, I've been thinking about the last few days and libs are nuts, as you and I both know, and they will come in with a President Kamala Harris. And I don't want to get you too excited. And they'll say that, the, you know, that that gun violence is an emergency. And so they're just going to say that they're going to they need to confiscate under national emergency power. They're going to confiscate all, all uh, you know, assault weapons or whatever, which would be a terrible idea You're on right. so many levels. But You're right. It's what we always have to keep in mind. Now, we don't want nothing to get done. That's not the goal. But any powers we give them, the next guy, you better ready to give the person you hate the most those same kind of powers. And it's scary to think. I mean, think about climate change, Buck. Think about the national emergencies they could declare for the climate change farce and the things they could do with it. It's it's frightening. Yeah, absolutely. Climate change is also the one where I I have conversations, Jesse, with people who are, are seemingly normal. You know, otherwise they sound like folks that you could have a a normal chat with about a whole range of issues and then climate change comes up and they're crazy all of a sudden i'm like what are you thinking you re- you really believe that we have we have more forest fires going on in california because of global climate change are you are you out of your mind it's not a it's not a political stance i tell people that it is a religion those those climate change people who really believe it it is a religion to them and what's funny is there's it's separated into two groups half of them are the wackos who believe it, and half of them are the politicians who don't believe it at all but pretend they do. Like Obama was this great climate change champion, but the guy flew his personal pizza chef from Chicago to D.C. to make him a pizza. <laughs> right. See, if you really thought that CO2 emissions, that, that, that carbon emissions in the air were going to destroy the planet for future generations, wouldn't you modify your behavior just just a little bit? Like, I'll tell you, here, here's an example. I find littering horrendous, right? Now, whether I drop a little bit of my, you know, bu- I don't chew bubble gum, but this is, you get the idea. If I drop my bubble gum wrapper on the street, nobody's going to die. Nothing's terrible. The city is not going to be a trash heap. You know, it doesn't really matter except for the fact that I feel like my, you know, my personal action should be reflective of how I feel. And I just think littering is a gross thing to do. So if I felt the way they do about climate change, I feel like I would modify my behavior. The fact that they don't modify their personal behavior makes me think that they're all full of it and crazy. They are. They are full of it. They are full of it. But, you know, every religion, climate change is a religion, and every religion needs a God. And that's what they want to be. They want to be that leader, and they know if they just bake it enough, these wackos will, will, will bow down to them. I mean, the Hollywood guys, was it DiCaprio? He was always talking about climate change, and then he just lived on a yacht for months at a time. <laughs> yep, and flies everywhere. And flies everywhere private, of course. Which I mean, the thing about flying private, it's not just that that's they're obviously you know super limousine liberals, um, but or, or private jet progressives. But it's also that if you look at the carbon emissions from one private flight, what that burns up in terms of gas versus what a normal person would do over the course of a month. It's astronomically more, right? It's it's a whole lot more. Yeah. So anyway, I even I, I agree with you. It's it's nonsense, but that's why you put the emerg, you know, emergency powers. It, it, the, the problem is that the government now is shared between one side of the country that's living in reality and the other side of the country that's just full of delusional snowflake crybabies. And and that then brings me to this, my friend. Which was the bigger political self-own, Beto O'Rourke? 
doing a a a video of himself getting his teeth cleaned as if that's something that anybody ever wants to hear or Elizabeth Warren's DNA test. It's still Elizabeth Warren's DNA test. That <laughs> That's the most embarrassing thing I've ever seen in politics. It's probably my favorite story ever because she's an insane person. But to for years run a scam that you're an Indian, get ready to run for president, let Donald Trump troll you into taking a DNA test that proves you weren't an Indian, and then release said test publicly as if it proved that you were an Indian has to be the dumbest thing I've ever seen a politician do in my entire life. I, I, I'm still stunned that she could be that stupid. It's it's amazing to me because, you know, this is what I, I have to I remind myself of this whenever I see, you know, the uh, the, the just the outrage from the Washington Post, the New York Times, MSNBC, CNN, and the rest of the of the mainstream media crew over everything that Trump does, and then they'll say things like Trump should be removed with the Twenty Fifth Amendment. Trump is is not fit to be president, and then they'll write glowing editorials about Elizabeth Warren. I'm like Elizabeth Warren thinks of being one one thousand and twenty fourth Native American <laughs> makes her a Native American. Elizabeth Warren is a crazy person. Uh, the best part of that was somebody said it, and I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but the average American is like one in 700. So actually, she's like the whitest person in the United States of America. <laughs> and to release that publicly, I just, I'm, I'm stunned. I can see taking the DNA test. Maybe you take it, cross your fingers. You know, hopefully you have a little, then you can go out and prove it. But if it doesn't prove what you wanted it to prove, shut up about it. Shred the results, then burn them, then launch them into outer space and never speak about them again. I, I also think that the, the Beto thing, which which we've been we've, we've been talking about all day here, where this guy takes his video, he's like, he's like oh, I just want to have a continue. By the way, am I the only one who thinks he sounds like Napoleon Dynamite? I, I just want to have a continuing <laughs> discussion about the border. Like I just really, I just want to ride my skateboard and just be really cool. You know, he does this weird video, and and I look at this guy. I'm like, I've been told for the last six months by every lib I know, and I know a lot of them, that Beto is so Kennedy esque. He's so cool. He's so handsome. And I just want to be like, are we, are we talking about the same person? This guy's a dork who married a billionaire. Why do I have to pretend he's anything other than that? Buck, I'm assuming you've seen the show Veep, the HBO political show Veep, the comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you haven't, the, the, the main character of the show, for anybody who hasn't seen the show, has this scene where she decides she wants to go get ice cream, or she wants ice cream. And obviously she wants someone to bring it to her, but her staff convinces her that they should go out in public so she can be seen getting ice cream, and they call it normalizing. And that's Beto's entire life, is normalizing. That's why he rides a skateboard and Whataburger. That's why he takes an obviously obviously planned cam, uh, video of him playing air drums in his car. He's at the dentist. Look, I'm just like you. And it is so funny because he's the ultimate limousine liberal. I believe his father's a billionaire. And he is going to spend the next two years normalizing. That's what he's doing. Yes, and this is why the authenticity. Say, say People can say a lot of things about Trump, and a lot of things they say about him are true. But Trump is like, yeah, I'm a billionaire. I fly around in jets, but I like construction workers. I care about people who work jobs that they work. And whether people like Trump or not, 
people that work a lot of those jobs think that Trump does care and is trying to help them out. And he's not running around acting like he's a normal dude. He's like, I am not normal. I'm a boss. <laughs> I'm the Trump. So I just think that I think that there's authenticity in owning it. There is. And he's, he's in his all gold apartment and he brags about it in his jet, his gigantic Trump jet. But he does because of his upbringing. I guess his father used to make him work on construction crews. He does speak the language of the common man. And it's very fascinating that he is a New York billionaire, but the common man thinks he's one of him and he loves it. Yeah. And, you know, look, oh, and Obama lives in a, a, effectively a castle in Washington, D.C. I mean, you know, he lives in a mansion. There's so many of these people that are, are held up by the media as having the common touch in some way or, or as just being like us. I'm like, this is not no one get no normal person gets a 50 million dollar book advance, by the way. OK, and, and no one's ever going to make money back on that. That's just buying off the Obama legacy via the uh, you know, liberal publishing houses. But I, I got very, very one more important question for you, Jesse, before we let you go. I mean, when push comes to shove, just as as a man, Jesse Kelly, are you more likely if you were forced to wear a an Ocasio-Cortez 20, it'd have to be like 2028 or something, she's too young. But let's just say she could run. Ocasio-Cortez 2020 or Kamala Harris 2020, who gets who? who is Jesse Kelly going to wear a t-shirt for? I've never been more insulted, but I, I can't even believe that's a question. Of course it's Harris. Get out of here with <laughs> really? that. Really? Really? Like oh, come on. Harris, wow. Harris is like 53 and still a dime. Obviously takes care of herself. Oh, Harris all day long. All day. Cortez is not even in that conversation. I might uh, buy that bumper sticker right now. Oh, my gosh. Look at that. Jesse Kelly letting us know if he, if he had to go liberal. He's letting us know who he would support. Speaking of which, I, I sat at the table next to Loretta Lynch at dinner last night here in D.C. It was very swampy, um, but I but I did not, uh, of course, disturb or even or even uh, deal with her at all. So there's uh, there, just just throwing that in there, not for nothing. Jesse Kelly, everybody, nine fifty KPRC down at Houston. Also follow him on Twitter. Look for the Jesse Kelly Show. It is excellent. He is excellent, sir. You're a great American. Have a fantastic weekend. This should be easy to get approved through Congress because the same people that are holding it up have approved it many times before. Ted and John, I mean, they, these people approved it just a few years ago. And now all of a sudden they're not. They came to me with a package beyond the barrier. And if it was something that we all agreed with, that the senators agreed with, that everybody liked, it's common sense. Most of this is common sense. I'm all for it. I'm prepared for anything. I'm prepared for it. The lawyers tell me, like, 100%. That doesn't stop people from suing. It doesn't stop people from suing, but Trump's right. This should not be that hard. He's talking about the wall. We got. We have an expert joining us now on, on Trump, on walls, on... Uh, all, all things D.C. And, and just wisdom and life in general. Benny Johnson is with us. He is a, a Daily Caller guy. He does all kinds of great viral videos and, and posts. And de- uh, Mr. Benny Johnson, great to have you, sir. Buck, how are you doing, my bro? I'm good, man. I'm good. Uh, so, you know, Trump is, is talking wall. I think that the wall is a great idea. You think the wall needs to happen. You've done some work on walls in the last week or so what can you tell us about it oh i mean walls are great right so think about it if you live in a house or an apartment or if you live in a dumpster you still technically have a house made of walls 
And so a lot of people have walls, like really big walls, really fun walls. But typically your office building, where you go to work, where you eat at night, those have walls too. And so walls are like a really important part of American society, I've discovered in my research book. I believe that CNN, and I'm not even kidding, has been doing some pieces now on are there places where walls do work? <laughs> it's like, yes, <laughs> in fact, there are. So here's, so here's a fun thing that we're doing at the Daily Caller now. Uh, we're doing a series called Walls Across America. And what I am doing is, as an, an, an intrepid journalist, Buck, I am traveling to wealthy or powerful politicians or influencers or tech moguls or celebrities' homes and showing America the walls in which they live behind. Um, the point being that most wealthy or powerful people have walls, big walls, not just the walls that make your house, but big giant walls with security fences around their house, keeping people from even entering uh, what they hold dear, the property they hold dear, and the people they hold dear. Um, we've done one with Obama. And we're about to launch uh, item number two, series number, the second in the series. Uh, this one's going to be a doozy. This wall was amazing. Amazing, Buck. It was in Long Island. Um, and it's, uh, you know, the point, I guess, is, is ultimately not to wreck people for wanting their houses and their loved ones and their treasure to be secure, but just to prove that walls do indeed work to protect those kind of things should America have one. But, you know, I saw Jim Acosta down at the border and Jim Acosta was standing at a wall and said, oh, here I am at a wall and I don't see a lot of violence. So maybe walls don't work. Explain that one to me. So this is one of the one of the more magnificent cell phones in, in the history of American journalism. I do wonder if Jim Acosta is a false flag. Uh, operation if he is just an actual major Trump supporter who was like created, um, in, you know, created in, in some type of experimental laboratory to just make every conservative point for them. What he did was he traveled to a part of Texas, McAllen, Texas, where there is a massive steel wall, a kind of wall that Trump wants to put on the border. And he posted a video smugly talking about how safe he felt and how wonderful he felt and how there was no crime and no violence around this wall. This of course, is proving Trump's point. Exactly. Uh, somehow, somehow, Jim Acosta thought he was owning the cons by doing this. I don't really know what exactly goes on in his head. He's, uh, you know, one of, one of uh, the more uh, confusing reporters because he does quite regularly prove uh, the, the opposite of the point he's trying to make. Indeed he does. Well, Benny, please keep up your work on walls. Please, please, sir, keep on owning those libs and uh, where should folks go to see your latest work your series on walls and all other things benny johnson series on walls can be found at the daily caller on youtube on facebook uh and on uh my uh private youtube facebook instagram benny johnson on twitter benny johnson on facebook benny johnson on instagram daily caller on all those platforms we're going to be we're going to be launching it this weekend our newest series on walls across america oh man you're going to love this new one uh, fantastic stuff, my friend. Benny Johnson, everybody. Check out his stuff. Benny, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Buck. Well, team, you know, you're hearing from Benny Johnson. You're hearing from Jesse Kelly. 
a little bit of a scholarship from our friend Art Arthur over at uh, CIS. You know, we've covered a lot of territory today. That's what we like to do. Fridays like to let it rip. Like to uh, bring in all kinds of folks. Uh, so, and I also want you to always know if there's someone you want me to have on the show, I'm happy to reach out and try to get them on the show to talk to them. So, if you got somebody out there, you say, "Oh, I, I saw that person on Fox. I think he or she would be really good." We'll reach out. We'll get them on. It's, uh, people like to hang out in the Freedom Hut. It's a good place. We have roll calls coming up. In fact, a double roll call session for your delight. So, stay with me. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Going to do a double roll call because we're about to head off into the weekend. Everybody's working for the weekend. Yeah. I know it's not the best. It's not the best rendition of the song, but you're excited because it is, in fact, the weekend. Uh, and that's a good thing. Let's get to it. I found a cache of Team Buck emails that uh, that I wanted to share with you. Um, they were coming via bucksexon.com, which we have had under maintenance. I think you could still go to it, but we've had it under maintenance for a little while. We are slowly but surely planning a revamp of all things uh, of all things Team Buck and bucksexon.com related. So I, I wanted you to be aware of that. And with that, I will get to some of these emails that have been sent to me that I did not even know were there. All right. Uh, this was, I don't even know when this was sent. I just got this cache of emails. This is from Brian, who wrote to us at BuckSexton.com. Buck, you've been hitting the subject of media dishonesty and loss of integrity for many weeks now. Listening to you talk is like listening to me talk, only I have better hair. Whoa. Fake news. The funny thing is, the media knew that they were going to lose their power, or at least they had the idea they were going to lose their power back in 2012. WikiLeaks exposed emails between CNN and Clinton that bore out the idea that because of the internet, the media would no longer be able to hold their spell over the American people. The internet would allow people to look around and outside of the media narrative and find the actual truth. In modern times, we have recognized this and discovered that it is true, but back when the Clinton machine was trying to take over, they were already talking about it. Happily, they were unable to stop the momentum of that occurrence, and now people like you and me can see the media and the government media complex for what it is. Hopefully their time is over or drawing to a close, and then we can actually have an honest national discussion about what our country is and where it is going. Shield tie, Brian. Yeah, Brian, I think that the sense we have of the media has dramatically changed, and I think that this is a good thing. And that's why the, the, the media in general is so uh, both sanctimonious and defensive at the same time uh, because they're trying to hold on to what they have. They know that it's eventually a losing battle and they're very angry about it in the meantime. They're very much uh, trying to push back on all of this. So, yes, absolutely all, all true. And I think your observations are astute. Matt right? Oh, no, Andy, not Matt. Sorry. Andy writes, I love your two hours on Vlad the Impaler back in 2015. Loved it so much that did even more research on that time period and just completed an, uh, a script for an hour-long episode, factional show about Vlad's father's rise and fall. Thanks again. Well, Andy, that sounds really cool, man. And I'm glad you enjoyed the Vlad, 
Vlad the Impaler, the episode of Dracula. Today I did also my impression of Napoleon Dynamite in the office, and everyone thought it was really good. Which is funny, because I've actually never seen Napoleon Dynamite, but... But I do like my Vlad the Impaler impression. It's fun to do. It's probably annoying to hear, though. Uh, yeah, no, that's an amazing story of that of Vlad and Vlad's dad, the Order of the Dragon. Really interesting period in history. My my dream is to one day do some of those battles as a, a, a scripted series for Netflix or something like that. That would really, if I could kind of pick a job that I could just do, I think that would be it. I would do a probably. Um, a whole Battle of Lepanto miniseries, that would be boss. That would be amazing. Do That's a six episode. I think six, you could do six hour-long episodes for the Battle of Lepanto. and it would Because remember, there were the battles before uh, that, that led up to it. You could cover some of that. And the, yeah, I've already got it scripted out of my head. I've been watching Battlestar Galactica. So many of you have told me in the past that it's a great show. I'm not loving it. I'm not a huge fan. I'm trying, guys. I want to like it, but I just have not found Battlestar Galactica to be my thing. Uh, John writes, Buck, I was just listening to the Friday program, and uh, yesterday I spent some time looking for a source for ringtones on my iPhone. Can uh, I'm looking for Locker Up and CNN Sucks. Can you help? Um, I I don't know if there's ringtones for those, but there should be. And uh, I appreciate you writing in and, and raising the question. Uh, let's see. We have more emails come in here. And this one says, oh, this is from Matthew. Ooh, this one is long. Buck, I heard you asking about the official food of Chicago once. You were asking about deep dish pizza versus Polish sausage. It's a little more involved than that. First of all, the deep dish pizza is more of a tourist trap type food. There are some famous restaurants for deep dish but I would say locals in the region do not go out of their way for deep dish. In fact, growing up, I never had a deep dish or so-called Chicago-style pizza until I moved away. These places selling deep dish in the area, you're usually forced to go when you have family or friends visiting because that's what they want, or maybe a visiting co-worker because they insist. You're done after a piece, and you always regret it. Yeah, I don't even know what deep dish pizza... I guess it's just really thick pizza. That sounds kind of... I'll be honest, that sounds kind of gross. The more authentic Chicago pizza is what is referred to as tavern style. This is a thin crust pizza cut into squares. So not your traditional East Coast slice, but a square piece. The smaller square pieces allow you to pace yourself and try different pizzas at a party, for instance. You're not stuck with a big piece, blah, blah, blah. The official food of that region is Chicagoland. Uh, of, of the region that is Chicagoland would be a five-way tie. Italian beef sandwiches, Polish sausage, Chicago-style hot dogs, no ketchup allowed, thin or tavern-style pizza, and pierogies. Wow, I've not had any of those things, I think, ever. Then again, I've also never really spent much. I've been to Chicago, but I've never really done Chicago. Something I'm going to have to I'm gonna have to change. Um, but I'm not going to change it now because I hear it's rather cold this time of year. So that is a little bit, uh, a little bit different. Um, this is Matt. Uh, here we go. Whoops. No, I already had Matt before. Oh, you know what I'm going to do team. Now I'm going to switch back to Facebook. So I got that cache of emails, but now I'm going to switch back to Facebook. So when I come back, we'll get into a roll call on facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. 
She's a lean, mean analysis machine. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. You know, I had my checkup this past week, and uh, so far so good. Nothing to, nothing to be concerned about. I'm, I'm in, I'm in tip-top health. I wouldn't say tip-top shape right now. A little bit busy to get to the gym. Then how do you explain his uh, freakish strength? Like your papa. He ate his spinach every day. <laughs> and that's what I want to tell you. I had this, you know, the uh, the physician's assistant who happened to be a pretty attractive young lady um, did the whole, I'm standing on the scale and she's, you know, pushing the, the top of the scale a little bit at a time. It's that old doctor's scale. You only see them in doctor's offices. Everyone else has digital scales now, but pushing the, Pushing the little weighted part a little more, a little more. I, I felt, I felt judged. I felt a little judged. I'm not. Uh, I'm thinking it's because lean, mean analysis machine. Well, maybe analysis machine, but uh, I got to get back to being lean and mean. So note to self: this weekend, time to uh, start start hitting the gym with with a vengeance again. Deadlifts. I need to do the deadlifts and do the clean and jerk and the deadlift. Then everything will be fine. That's all you have to do. Squat rack. What are you doing this weekend? I'm doing the squat rack. That's all you have to do, really. Squat rack changes everything. That's the, that's the game changer. Note to self. All right, your thoughts. Roll call. Enough self-help motivation for me. Um, and uh, Facebook.com slash Buck Saxon if you want to be in on this action. Let us get right to it, shall we? Josh is first up in the mix here. Aerosmith isn't the best band in the last 30 years. I'd say Tool is. If you haven't ever heard the album Lateralis, you need to, uh, it's a pure work of art. Second, have you seen there was another assault weapon ban bill put forward this week? I'm all for what Trump's doing with the border and shutting the government, but I'm not excusing the bump stock ban he allowed to happen. I hope people call him out on it on the campaign trail. Uh, Josh, I don't know anybody else who would put Tool in the best rock bands of all time category that said i can appreciate that you're a man who's willing to uh march to the beat of his own drum on that one so uh yep there we go tool i don't even know john do you know any tool songs i don't even know what tool is uh, I, I i've heard of it but i can't even think of a song by tool tj right whoop that federal employee that you guys interviewed for rising doesn't sound like she's doing everything she can to keep from having to sell her car. I'm sorry, but why would you be out protesting if you might have to sell your car tomorrow? You just said you have a temp job. Shouldn't you be working there? Also, if missing your paycheck today means missing a car payment, which means losing your car, then you're probably already way behind on payments. It seems like lots of these federal employees have been spoiled for far too long and quite apparently do not know how to save money. I'm sure there are people hurting out there but they should try petitioning their church parish instead of protesting the government. You're going to find a lot more empathy under God's roof than from the hand of the federal government. Rant over. Shields high. Uh, TJ. TJ is bringing the, bringing the uh, salty stuff here, man. Uh, uh, TJ, I would agree with you. People have been asking me. They're like, why would, why would people be losing their house and, and going, uh, you know, having all these terrible financial consequences happening Nancy Pelosi saying that it's going to damage their credit, all this stuff. If you miss one paycheck when, I mean, I, I know for a fact with credit cards, you've got to be 30 days late for it to even possibly be reported to the credit agencies. And the damage of a 30-day late payment is pretty minimal. 
a 90 day late payment is a problem. So that, you know, that's unless they've changed the way those algorithms and all that stuff work. So there you have it. Uh, James writes, hi, Buck, regarding the possibility of the president declaring a crisis at the border. We can argue that if it was wrong for Obama to circumvent Congress to get what he wanted, DACA, then it's also wrong to do the same for Trump. Though I agree in principle, these two situations are not the same and both sides aren't playing by the same rules. Plus, Trump may actually have the law on his side. I suppose you could consider the so-called dreamers a crisis, but a crisis to who? Illegal aliens or U.S. citizens? Also, are we to believe that there is some type of statute of limitations on a crisis? That, uh, that is, you either don't recognize it or are unable to deal with it. At its inception, it cannot be called the crisis. I know I just crammed a lot in there, but I'm sure you can handle it. Sincerely, James. Well, James, thank you. And I think I probably, hopefully, can handle it. Uh, the, the issue of the president declaring a national emergency or national crisis, whatever we're going to call it, um, is, is an important one to take very seriously. But there is a statute. Remember, we had Andy McCarthy on. To talk about this in detail and even to read the statute, there is a statute that Congress passed that says the president can do this. And there's also in that statute a a place where the Congress can stop the president from that action. So there is a check and a, a built in check on that power from the Congress. Uh, I think it's a two thirds majority. But, you know, what that means is the president can't just say, yeah, there's a crisis, so I'm going to go seize everybody's assault weapons. Well, one, that would be flatly unconstitutional. And two, the Congress could say, actually, you're not going to do that. Um, but this this is this is uh, serious stuff. I mean, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to downplay what it means for the president to say, I'm taking this action because there is a terrible crisis at our southern border. You know, I, I'm not going to pretend that that's not. A, a combustible situation that also sets a precedent that future administrations may in fact abuse. O- Obama took flatly constitutional actions on a number of occasions and was stopped by the courts on a number of occasions. You know, Obama's administration thought they could tell the Senate when it was and was not in recess. You know, there were things that, are, and then there was obviously DACA and the administration was trying to find ways to just use executive power. And we were saying then, hey, this is not acceptable. This is not within the scope of presidential authority. But the libs and the little cheerleaders in the media all went along with it. Well, now we're looking at Trump having the authority, but is it a good idea for him to use the authority? That's a different That's a different thing. Um, but just because he has the authority it does not mean necessarily he should use it. But in this case, I think he should, because I believe that the border is a massive problem for the country going forward and has been a problem that we've been told to ignore for far too long. So I'm with the president on taking uh, the most bold action he can on this. Karen writes, most hilarious German movie I have ever seen is Goodbye Lenin, about how things change when the Berlin Wall came down and Germany reunited. Um, I've never heard of that, nor have I seen it, but it sounds interesting. So, Karen, thank you for bringing it to my attention. David, it's Buck. Shields high. You must have said something a little too accurate. I listen on podcasts, and for some reason, your podcast on Google Play goes into perpetual loading. 
No other podcast on their site is having this issue. FYI. Hey, guys, is that happening? We got to send Google a angry email. Stop, st- stop trying to put Buck in a corner. Nobody puts Buck in a corner. Dan writes, Buck, I'm sure you can find the video or soundbite from 2016 debates and rallies where Trump said one way to have Mexico pay for the wall was to levy a fee or a tax on all the money transfers from the U.S. to Mexico. But you are correct. He never said they would write it, that he would write a check. Yeah, no, Dan, I know. And look, their campaign rhetoric, no matter what president we're talking about, campaign rhetoric tends to be a little, a little, uh, you know, a little fast and loose. People tend not to be held to every word they say in the campaign. Yeah, we got to hold people to the big promises, the important stuff. But, you know, all of a sudden we're we're going to assume that everything that a politician says when they're running for president, uh, they they will be held to every word of it. Uh, that's that's quite a standard. I And I don't think it's a standard that, uh, you know, I don't think it's a standard that we have held other presidents to, Republican or Democrat. Tommy writes, Buck takes San Diego. Cafe Sevilla, Hash House, a go-go, great places, and pro-gluten-free. The gluten-free girl I took there became my missus. Thank me later. Well, Tommy, I'm thanking you now, my man. Really appreciate that. I will definitely, uh, I will definitely check that out. Um, those sound like really good recommendations. Team, that's going to be it for today. Have a fantastic weekend. I'll be talking to you on Monday and then from the border every day after that. Shields high. A lot of people have heard of the AARP, but you or someone you know might be a member and not even know that the AARP is really left wing. A lot of progressive causes that they advocate for all about Obamacare and trying to help push higher taxes. You don't want that. How about I tell you where you can get all the benefits of AARP, but actually support what you believe in? I recommend AMAC. Why AMAC? Well, AMAC has, uh, first of all, over 1.5 million Americans who have joined. That number is growing all the time. And AMAC is all about what you value, okay? It gets you discounts on car insurance, hotels, roadside assistance, dental plans, even cell service options, okay? Lots of benefits, and it believes in conservative values. Check out AMAC. Join right now at amac.us slash buck. That's A-M-A-C dot us slash buck amac dot us slash buck amac is better for you better for america